10 years since I've taught like this. And in those 10 years, of course, I've aged. So I have two kinds of glasses. The ones I'm wearing that can let me see, but I can't see any of you. And the ones that will let me see you, but I can't see here. So this kind of works out perfect for me because I am very, very um, nervous. Um, if you know the new me, not the 10 years ago me, or even the 20 years ago me, I've become, oh, <laughs> sorry, I've become very shy, very antisocial, and I don't mean it in a mean way, um, but I don't know how to people anymore, and I'll get into that. Um, I'm trying not to fall down. I had surgery about three weeks ago, Tuesday, so forgive me because I'm still healing. Um, and so I feel like everything kept me or was trying to keep me from coming tonight. My own fear, my own pride, my own um, feelings of just, I, this, isn't, this, this isn't it, this isn't me. I did a long time ago, but you find somebody else. Sorry, Mom. Um, but not to brag, I kind of consider myself an expert when it comes to quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. And it's not because I've been studying it, but because I've lived it. I continue to live it because, right, this is a study for the Christian. Um, and so it's something that we can continually do, not just something that we did once, right? So I was no stranger to the drinking, to the partying, to the promiscuity, to the lies, to become, and I became a single parent. Um, and so we can't talk about quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit without talking about sin. So tonight is not necessarily one of those feel-good studies. It ends with a message of love because God is love, but he's also told us we can't shy away from telling the whole truth, right? And so, again, I'm here tonight against all those odds, all those reasons why the enemy is like, you need to stay home. And if you know my family, we have not come in person for quite some time. And last month's study, um, Janice talked about the, you know, the online watcher, which is fine, but we did it, we do it, my family, out of fear, right? Coming in public and COVID and the kids and every time they come into public, they catch a whole new strain of virus, whether it's COVID or not, you know, they get, so we have our reasons why we didn't come. And I was so convicted by that message because I'm like, there's a sense of urgency to come and to be here. And it's that Holy Spirit telling you, you need to go home, you need to go back to church, you need to be with your people. But again, I'm not a people person, so it's hard for me. Um, but I've lived a life of quenching and grieving for so long that I made a vow to God that if he were to call on me again, I would not say no, and I would show up to do anything for him. It didn't mean that I'd be here in this seat, but anything. <laughs> it could have been serving donuts again. It could have been literally anything. But when my mom told me to think about it and pray about it, I was like, well, what's there to think about? Because she asked me to do it, so that means I got to do it, because that means he told her that I need to do it. <laughs> um, so I've got about 10 years of catching up to do, so you might be here a while. I'll try not to. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, so like I said, I, I just couldn't say no. And I do not sit up here tonight claiming to have it together. It's quite the opposite, actually. As my mom said, I continue to struggle. But for me, this, is a this was a message for me. Um, and I think that the Lord asked me to do it because he needed me to hear about his love and about his hope and about his restoration. Because I have yet to forgive myself for my life. 
So I'm very humbled to be here and um, try not to cry. Um, And eventually, hopefully, I stop shaking. So if you can pray with me, I would appreciate it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I just thank you for your presence here tonight. I thank you for your commitment to us. I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for chasing us and for pursuing us actively and for never stopping, even when we beg you to stop. So I pray, Lord God, that you would be in the midst of this room tonight, that you would be with each of us, that our hearts and our ears would be open to receive what it is that you have to say, that you would um, use me, Lord God, as I sit in my own fears, Lord, um, to deliver the message that you want us all to know and all to hear about your love and about your forgiveness and about our relationship with you. So we thank you and we give glory to your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a point that I'm going to make. So, okay, so bear with me. How many have been to Yellowstone National Park? My mom says I have. I don't remember. I was probably really young. Um, so I have some slides that I want to go over with you tonight to just show you something. Um, Yellowstone National Park is home to more than 10,000 hydrothermal features. And a hydrothermal feature is a hot body of water that exists under the Earth's surface, right? And in those bodies of water, there are microorganisms called thermophiles. And a thermophile is literally just a heat-loving organism. And they're found all throughout Yellowstone. And so behind the biology of it, we get to appreciate the beauty of what they create. So I think that's, yeah, that's, okay. So, but... And so millions of people every year visit Yellowstone to see these features. But because, as people often do, they've started to mess it up. This is why we can't have nice things, right? So this one is Old Faithful. It's the geyser and probably one of the most prominent or well-known features of Yellowstone. Its water can measure up to 350 degrees. Its eruptions extend from anywhere from 100 to 180 feet, lasting one and a half to five minutes depending on the volume of water and then cyclically every 20 minutes. In the 1800s, explorers and soldiers used it as a laundromat. They would put their soiled clothes on top of the geyser and wait for it to go up, clean their clothes. Um, And then visitors, park officials, scientists used to throw soap in the pools to try to induce an eruption. And then the next slide. <laughs> Those aren't my. I mean, maybe this, this is what the Lord wants us to. <laughs> but the next slide, when when we get there, let, give me a wink when we get there. Okay, cool. Uh, I can't really turn. Part of the surgery. I have a um, an in, well, my muscle from breastbone to pelvic bone was sewed back together. So I have had three kids. Um, like my mom said, I have three kids. Um, and so they just each tore me up like one after another. So. Um, that's what happened, and that's why I'm moving the way I'm moving, so sorry. Um, but anyways, this is the Grand Prismatic Spring. It's my favorite. This is the third largest hot spring in the world, and they say that it's deeper than a 10-story building and larger than a football field. In 2014, somebody flew a drone over to try and capture a picture, probably just like this, and it fell into the spring and never got it back, so it's lost in the abyss of the Grand Prismatic Spring. The next slide. 
So this is a really old picture, so it's not that good. And I took these offline. I have no rights to the pictures, so online, YouTube, don't come for me. I don't own them. I don't have the rights. <laughs> but they're free image search, so anyways. This is the Morning Glory Pool, okay? This picture was probably taken about in the 1960s, and it was known for its baby blue waters. You'll see in the picture, crystal clear baby blue waters. And in the 1950s, people siphoned water out of the pool. Again, can't have nice things, causing it to erupt. But in that eruption, they found just years' worth of garbage thrown into the pool. Trash, coins. The website, the Yellowstone National Park website, literally said a couch. <laughs> I didn't verify my source. It's from the national website. So, But that eruption, they recovered socks, towels, handkerchiefs, $86.27 worth of pennies, $8.10 and other coins. A total of 112 objects were removed from that eruption. It may seem inconsequential, but when this happens, when the debris is thrown into the pool, it sinks to the bottom. And remember, we talked about those thermophiles, the heat-loving bacteria or organisms. So when the vents become blocked by the garbage, it prevents proper circulation. So the next slide, you see all these guys trying to clean it out. And then, that was like 1975, I think. So, so then the next slide... That's the way it looks today. So those microorganisms start, new microorganisms start to enter the pool because the water, of, the temperature of the water changes. So it allows new organisms to enter the pool. It structurally, visually changes the dynamic of the pool. So the garbage at the bottom again of the reservoir keeps the heat from producing and ultimately permanently changes the structure. Now when we see it, we see orange and yellow rings that encircle the baby blue waters and it's super beautiful, right? I think it's gorgeous. I think it's incredible. I had no idea that it was crystal clear blue once upon a time. So we would have never known that this isn't the way that it was intended to look. So the garbage leads to this permanent structure change because it's blocking the heat source and they have no way of getting down there to clean it, to remove it out. So it sits there and it disturbs the ecosystem and we have this permanent change. And then, you know, we don't know the story, so we get to enjoy the new structure. And I said I had a point. It's reminiscent of us as Christians because the Holy Spirit is the thermophile and our sin is the garbage. So as Christians, that's the last slide, so we're good. Unless you want to keep it up to look at it, it's it's pretty cool. But as Christians, Yellowstone, again, can be seen as an analogy for when we quench and grieve the Holy Spirit by filling our lives with garbage. Because the Holy Spirit is represented by fire, in Hebrews 12:9, we're told, For our God is a consuming fire, and fire is symbolic of purification. So in Micah 3.3, 3, it says, The Lord will purify the descendants of Levi as though they were gold and silver. Then they will bring the proper offerings to the Lord. And gold and silver in their natural form have to be extracted and refined. They're not just the beautiful metals that we've known and come to love today. So it's through that extreme heat that they remove the impurities to make them these valuable metals. And in the scripture, in Micah 3.3, we're being told that the Lord will purify us, refine us, and cleanse us from our sin to present us like gold and silver to the Heavenly Father. And last month, we learned about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we learned that the Spirit takes permanent residence in us. And as Christians, we belong to God, and He belongs to us. His Holy Spirit lives inside of us and becomes a part of who we are. I made all my little tabs because I knew I'd get lost. In 
1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? And then in Romans 8.11, it says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So when we come to Christ, the Spirit resides in us. We go from death to eternal life, from sinner to saved, and the qualities of then of the Spirit begin to shine through us. And this is what we mean when we consider the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So as Christians, these are supposed to be our characteristics, right? This is the evidence that that change has happened. It's the evidence that we are like Christ because we have the Spirit's qualities. It represents the garbage that has been cleaned out from the bottom of our well, and as a result now, that heat source or the Holy Spirit can do his thing in us, right? And I'm working right now towards a degree in psychology. (laughs) And it's meant to intend to be for education, how we learn, right? Structure classes and help students and and build the, the curriculum. But in order to get there, we have to learn general psychology. So we have to learn human behavior. We have to learn the theories of the world, okay? And I've read philosophers and psychologists from Aristotle and Plato to Darwin and Freud. And every single one of them Every one of them was always searching to understand the nature of consciousness and behavior. And what is it that causes us to do what we do? What is the source of this motivation? Is it psychosexual, like Freud says? Is it psychosocial, like Erickson says? Is it behaviorism, like Skinner said? Are we a product of our environment? Did somebody, you know, ring a bell too many times and made me drool, and now I do what I do because they ring that bell? But for Christians, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's that still, small voice that speaks to us, that exists in us, and we are known by our fruit. What we produce, whether or not, our heat source, which the Holy Spirit is being blocked or not. So it's not that complicated, really. Um, Excuse me. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that keeps us from sin, because his present guides, speaks to, and leads us. And then the blood of Jesus is what seals us. In 2 Corinthians 1... 21 through 22. I wrote it here, too, because I had a feeling I'd be too nervous to actually find it. So I have my Bible, though. (laughs) Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So there are two things to take note in this section, the seal and the guarantee. I read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, who I got really excited when I read it because I didn't know this, but because I'm studying psychology, I learned that Charles Spurgeon and Charles Darwin existed in the same era, right? So as Charles Darwin is putting out his theory of evolution and, you know, all the theories that he had to tell at the time, Charles Spurgeon is preaching to the church. And it gives a whole new meaning to me about Charles Spurgeon's studies because in psychology they have what's called the zeitgeist. And the zeitgeist is the condition of the times. It's whatever society says is acceptable for us to accept, right? So at the time, people were longing for a new reason to believe in creation beyond the biblical account because they started to explore. They started to go out into the world. They had modes of transportation that got them from point A 
to point Z, places they'd never gone before. They started seeing all these new species of animals. So it could not be possible. There was no way that all those animals fit on the ark. There had to be another reason. So the zeitgeist of the time became, okay, there's, there's got to be something more to this. So enter Charles Darwin. So Charles Spurgeon is now fighting this theory to the church. Don't believe it. Don't follow it. There's, there, we have the Bible. We have the word. So I think it's really cool because it shows, you know, even today as a society, oh, my gosh, how far have we come from things? We're really in deep we're really in trouble, and we're being asked to compromise a lot. As women, we're being asked to compromise a lot. We kind of don't even know what that word means anymore, right? If we were to follow the, the zeitgeist of today's society. But anyways, in his 1859 sermon on grieving the Holy Spirit, Charles Spurgeon spoke of this seal, and he says, and I'm going to read it word for word because he was like a poet, so. The Spirit himself is expressed as the seal. Even as he himself is directly said to be the pledge of our inheritance, this sealing, I think, has a threefold meaning. It is a sealing of attestation or confirmation. And I want to know whether I'm truly a child of God. The Spirit itself also beareth witness with my spirit that I'm born of God. I have the writings, the title, the deeds, the inheritance to that which is to come. I want to know whether those are valid, whether they are true, and whether they are mere merciful counterfeits written out by this old scribe of hell. How am I to know? I look for the seal. After that, we have believed on the Son of God. The Father seals us as his children by the gift of the Holy Ghost. Second, it's a sealing of appropriation. When men put their mark upon an article, it shows that it is their own. The shepherd marks his sheep so that they may be recognized as belonging to his flock. And lastly, Spurgeon said that it's a seal of preservation. Men seal up that which they wish to have preserved. So we are kept, preserved, and sealed until the day of redemption. So then the second part of that is the guarantee. So what's the guarantee, right? The guarantee is that he will always be with us. As Christians, we belong to him. So it's a guarantee of eternal life. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a guarantee of our future. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Guarantee of our ministry, First Chronicles 28 through 20. Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not, I like that part, do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. And that doesn't mean, like, once it's finished, now he's going to leave you. It just means that, like, at that point, now our work, uh, you know, is finished and we all are together in communion. Um, it's a guarantee of our escape, right? So 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, beyond, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. He acknowledges our anxiety. A lot of people have anxiety, and anxiety can be one of those words that we don't like to say, Right? But he acknowledges our anxiety, our fears. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's in the Bible. Anxiety, the word itself, is in the Bible. It's fear, right? It's fear. It's worry. It's, it's, it's our protection. He guarantees our protection. Joshua 1, 5. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I am with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you keep saying, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Like, I got you. You're good. I'm here. 
But it's a two-way relationship, right? So we've heard his part, his seal, his guarantee. So what's our part? Because we have to do our part. And since the Holy Spirit lives and exists inside of us, he's sealed us and given us this guarantee that he'll never leave us. Our part of the relationship, because it's a relationship, we're choosing to follow God. He's not interested in slaves. He will not force us. Um, I think he begs us. He's like, please, I have so much for you. I told you I have a future for you. I have a hope for you. I have a plan for you. Like, would you please just accept me? But he won't take slaves, right? He, he wants us to be free in this choice. So we've recognized our need for a savior. We've confessed our sin. He enters in. He becomes the light in our darkness, the heat source, back to the thermophiles, from which we thrive. Ephesians 5, 8, it says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. And where there is light, darkness cannot exist. So if you look around the room tonight, there is no darkness that can be seen. There might be a dimming of the light, but there's no darkness because the lights are on. But if we were to turn off all the lights, board the windows, board the doors, let no light in, then we'd be in pitch black, right? But light can exist in the darkness because I could light a candle and all of a sudden, the dark now is going to have a light. It's going to be that candle burning that we'll be able to have that focus on. So, though darkness can't exist in the light, light can exist in the darkness. And we'd have to take that candle and we'd have to blow it out to be back into total darkness. So you have to extinguish the light the way that you would extinguish a flame or turn off the light. You put it out. You turn it off. And as Christians, this is what it means to quench the Holy Spirit. To quench is a verb. It's an action. It's literally to put out, according to Merriam-Webster. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, we're told, do not quench the Holy Spirit. So then how do we put out the Holy Spirit? Romans 8.9 reminds us that you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit, he is not his. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So we know that the Holy Spirit is the fire that burns us in us, and God is not a God of confusion, so he gave us clear instructions on how not to quench the Holy Spirit. He's always left us a guide to Adam and Eve. He told them what to do, what not to do. We know how that turned out. To Noah, he gave the blueprint for the ark. To the children of Israel, he gave the Ten Commandments. He gave us instructions on how to pray. Lord, I don't know how to pray. He gave us instructions on how to pray in Matthew 6. He gave us the word. He gave us the Bible. There's literally everything that we need to know about following him and living a life with him in the word. So the Bible contains all the explicit instructions on what to do, what not to do. In several scriptures, we have clear instructions on how to avoid quenching the spirit. And we're going to focus on two ways mainly when we neglect the spiritual gift that he gives us, and second, when we sin. <clears throat> this is how I'm going to turn my Bible, because I have it really. So, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 21, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So Paul wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians, or the letter of 1 Thessalonians to the church of Thessalonica. It was a young church, about two to three years old before the letter was written, and they needed a lot of maturing. So in many ways, Paul wrote this letter as a blueprint for them to how to build a vital or strong, healthy ministry. 
And by warning him not to quench the, or warning them not to quench the Holy Spirit, what Paul really means is that we're not to ignore the Holy Spirit's gift that he's given to each of us. What's the purpose of life, right? The question that the psychologists and, and the philosophers ask. We all ask, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? It's a really bad place. I don't like it here. <laughs> but why am I here, right? It's that age-old question, why are we here? Oh, that was fun. Um, to the Christian, our time here is meant to represent God's love and his faithfulness and to bear witness to the unbeliever being a demonstration of his love. It's not just about ourselves, what we have to gain from God. There's so much, right? But when we accept God, we become a part of his, of his family, of his church, and we become a part of his ministry, what he longs to accomplish. How would, they always ask, you know, what are the people in the jungles of so-and-so, how will they ever come to, well, you. Because if you have that in your heart to go out and travel and to tell them and to reach them, then it's you. <clears throat> so the gifts are what are intended to be used to, to fulfill our purpose in life, in the church, in the ministry of God. Since he, the Holy Spirit, dwells inside each believer, he wants to express himself in our actions and our attitudes. And when we don't allow this to happen, either through action, right, our willful, willful sin and our willful disobedience, or our inaction, ignoring our purpose and our gift. That's where I lived for a really long time, both of those places. Um, and so when we don't allow the Spirit to reveal himself in the way that he wants us to, we impede the work of the cross. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. That's another long one. <clears throat> it says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of the spirits, to another dis- different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one in the same, spirit works all these things, distributing to each one equally as he wills. Individually as he wills, excuse me. So we hinder the gifts when we hinder the work of the Holy Spirit because we neglect or reject our gifts. Other times, the church can quench the Holy Spirit when we don't know how to let people use their gifts, right? There are some gifts that can be hard to understand. It says to the gift of tongues, there needs to be the gift of interpretation, the gift of prophecy, somebody who can tell the prophecy. And because we may not understand it, sometimes we refrain from using it or allowing it to be used. And then subsequently, we grieve, or excuse me, we quench the Spirit or the work of the Spirit in the church. It's not really through intent, more so. We just, we don't know, so we don't do, right? And so we stifle the gift because we don't make a way for it. In other cases, you hoard your gift. While I don't think I was really ever a confident person, I knew certain things about myself that I was confident in. But when I became entangled and immersed in relationships with people that I did not belong, I allowed myself to be destroyed. I allowed people in my life to chip away at what I knew to be true to myself, right, about myself. So when I returned to the Lord, the enemy took over for all those people because I cut them out of my life. But he took over, and in my mind I hear their words. You're not exactly sunshine yellow in the crayon box. I was literally told that one time. And it stuck with me because it made me feel so inadequate. Anything that I had to offer, I wasn't sunshine yellow. What does that mean? I'm not the brightest crayon in the crayon box, right? So it plays over and over and over in your head before you start believing it. And so you think, well, I'm not smart. I I don't have anything to offer. I'm going to be quiet. So we hoard our gifts. 
And the enemy likes to remind us of our, our flaws, of our sins, of the insults that people have replayed in our minds, the ways that people have made us feel inadequate, the ways we make ourselves feel inadequate, right? If I mess up, now I'm going to be dwelling on it because, again, I have social anxiety, so I'm going to replay everything I said tonight. I'm going to replay everything I did. And it's going to play in my mind over and over and over again until I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm never doing that again. And that's what the enemy does, right? He wants to come in. He wants to steal our peace. He wants to tell us lies so we don't get up and sit here in the seat again. But eventually, when I stopped listening to the enemy, or excuse me, when I listened to the enemy's voice, I found zero value in anything that I had to offer. My friends will tell you that that's true because they like to tell me how awesome I am. And I'm like, stop it. (laughs) I can't take a compliment to save my life. I don't like to be told anything good about myself. It makes me really uncomfortable. But it's really nice to hear, especially from people who it's been a really long time since I've been brave enough to go around, right? Because you really don't think, when you're in that headspace, you don't think people remember you. You don't think people think about you. You don't think they remember that thing that you did or that you said. And I've shared my testimony before. It was even as bad as it is now. And I remember a few months back, somebody approached me and they said, you know, My daughter still talks about to this day what happened on that one trip when you took her in your car with you. And she was so blessed. And I'm like, really? I pumped the gas with the engine on. Like, I almost killed your daughter. Like, I mean, that's pretty funny, I guess. If Thank God nobody got hurt. But, like, whatever the Lord did in that time, whatever relationship that we created in that moment, it stuck with that person. And... So you just don't know. You don't know what your influence is going to be, and yet we let the enemy tell us it's going to be a bad influence. It's going to be a negative influence. It's not going to be anything that's worth remembering. Or if it is, it's because it's gone viral on YouTube because you've, you know, you've made a mess of yourself, which is one of my illogical fears. I'm so afraid of going viral on YouTube for like doing something, and it's streaming tonight. So <laughs> I'm kind of in that place where I'm like, I don't know, I could go viral tonight, so I'm being careful what I say. Um, <laughs> seriously. I like. I kept telling my mom, I don't want to share my testimony because I'm going to be putting all my junk out there. If I share, if I share this thing, it's going to be on YouTube forever. It's not going to go away. You can't take it back once it's out there. That's social media. You cannot get it back. It just will exist until you no longer exist, until the world has burned down and there's a whole new planet. Like It is out there. I work in IT, so... <laughs> I like our, our, infrastructure, our security person has like, I don't even click links on emails at work from the president because I'm like, no, that's going to take me. Anyway, sorry, I digress. But anyways, it's an illogical fear that I have. And that was one of the fears that I had in coming here tonight. It's going to be streaming. I'm not going to be in the comfort of my home. I can't just listen on my couch when my kids make a mess. And I'm really not paying attention because I'm fussing at them anyways, right? <clears throat> I can't wear stretchy pants. This is the first time I have gotten dressed in about a month. Um, this, this jacket was in the garage. Um, it probably smells like garage, so don't get too close. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm wearing a wrap to keep my, my, my stomach in place. Um, so, you know, it's like I got out of my comfort zone to be here tonight again. But anyways, so again, I live in this headspace of like I could never believe in myself and psychology, right? It's called imposter syndrome. I wholeheartedly believe in imposter syndrome. And I believe that the enemy is what makes us believe that we are imposters, right? And imposter syndrome is essentially the gig is up. They're going to find out. I have no clue what I'm doing. I've been faking it. I've been fake it till I make it. And I'm no longer going to make it because I've been faking it too long. They're going to find out. I have no clue what I'm doing. That's imposter syndrome. It doesn't matter how good you are at something. 
I got a 4.0 when I graduated with my master's degree. Tell me I did not believe that my, my professors did not read my papers and just felt like giving me an A. I, to this day, maintain I did not deserve that A. I did not earn that A. Even though I did the work, I put in the work, I stayed up late. Um, it was COVID. I was pregnant. I, my baby was a 50% chance of survival because I had sub uh, hematomas. There was bleeding, right? So I had all these reasons to just cop out. But again, because people told me I couldn't, I'm also really stubborn. So I like to tell, prove people that I can. But again, at the end of that success, imposter syndrome, you didn't earn it. Somebody gave it to you because they felt sorry for you or they just got lazy and didn't want to grade another paper. So you got an A. <clears throat> so you fear that you're going to be discovered for the fraud that you are. And this mentality trickles over into ministry, right? Because I have a really bad past. So again, back to YouTube. Somebody online tonight can remember that I did that one thing, that one time, with that one person, and come and disqualify me. And I have done things to people in the church. I have regrets for how I've treated my sisters, my brothers. I have regrets for... This is the part that I wasn't sure if I wasn't sure. I owe my daughter's father a huge apology that I have yet to be able to give him because I can't find the words to do it. <clears throat> When I was walking away from the Lord, when I walked away from the Lord, I lived a total lie for years. My parents didn't even know where I lived. That's how bad it was. I was a liar, just a total liar. I didn't even know the truth from the lie anymore. I was, and this is why I think I have social anxiety. I don't know who knows what about me. Um, and I owe him an apology. It's not his fault. It's my fault. I did it. I lived where I shouldn't have lived. I existed where I shouldn't have existed. You can't blame somebody else for treating you away when you know where you're supposed to be. And it was through hurt. It was through anger. You know, my, my cousin passed away unexpectedly. My grandma got dementia. My mom had breast cancer. My sister moved away. My five-year relationship that I just thought was going to be the one, it ended. So God can't exist. He's not real. He's, he's not thinking about me, right? And if he does exist, then... I'm just not good enough for him to give me the things that I want to stop this hurt in my life. <clears throat> totally off script, by the way. <laughs> but I owe that person an apology because I changed the course of his life through my lies. Through my, I was a Christian. I walked away. It wasn't that I wasn't. I was raised in the church, right? I accepted the Lord myself when I was a teen, walked away, came back. I was like a yo-yo Christian, right? Um... So I owe him that. I can't give it to him yet because I don't know how it's going to be received. And online tonight, I keep thinking he's going to watch it. Why would he watch it? How would it even find him, you know? But my daughter, my, my beautiful 10-year-old daughter, is she changed my life. And God used her to change my life because he knew without her I was going nowhere. I would keep returning to my vomit. Like a dog to his own. I would keep going back. I would keep going back. I needed something he knew. And it's sad that I had to be here at her expense. But he knew that I needed something, some accountability to be better, to do better, to thrive. And so she is that. And she wanted to come tonight, but we're going to talk about, like, sex and stuff. So <laughs> you can't come. So sorry. <laughs> um, but anyways, we tend to listen to the enemy's voice instead of the Lord's voice. And we convince ourselves out of the service. We end up neglecting the gift by rejecting the gift that God has given us. The only time in history that it has ever been recorded that an inmate declined a presidential pardon from death row happened in 1833 
when the United States versus, versus Wilson, uh, Wilson and a friend were convicted of robbing a mail carrier, among other charges, and they were sentenced to death. Way different penalties back then. President Andrew Jackson at the time pardoned Wilson on account of his being influenced to commit the crime. But Wilson declined the pardon with little to no explanation. And the Chief Justice, John Marshall, at that time said, A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is rendered. And if, and if it be rejected, we have discovered that there is no power in the court to force it on him. It would seem unfathomable, right, to reject such a gift. But this is the equivalent of willfully rejecting the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The work of the ministry is intended to save lives. The rejection not only quenches the work of the Spirit, but it grieves Him. And the rejection of the Holy Spirit is a sin in and of itself. And any time we sin, the result is now twofold. We've quenched, and now we grieve the Spirit. So not only do we quench, but we grieve the Holy Spirit with our disobedience and our willful rejection. We can't claim to not know, right? We're Christians. We're sitting in church. We have our Bibles. We now know. There's, we have that accountability. So when we talk about grieving the Holy Spirit, it's, enough, it's again essential to understand what that grief means here. Again, it's an action. Just like to quench, we cause grief. It's to grieve. We grieve the Holy Spirit. It's another verb, another action. And we're talking about causing him a deep sorrow. And I remember when we were little, and I'd get in trouble. I expected to be in trouble, right? The punishment. Excuse me. But instead of the punishment, you hear, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed which is the worst. <laughs> be mad. Like, please be mad. Don't be disappointed. I can handle mad. It's what I expect. I did something I wasn't supposed to do. But don't be disappointed in me because disappointed in me now means that, like, how do I make it up to you? How do I fix it? I, I can't come back from disappointment, right? I can come back from mad. I can be funny. I can do a little dance, make you forget what I did. Uh, but if you're disappointed, it's going to linger. It's, it's going to grieve you, right, as a parent, when you tell your kid over and over and over again, like, don't do this thing, and they do that thing, and you're like, literally, like, why? And Charles Spurgeon, again, I think he just described it so beautifully. He said, there is something very touching in this admonition, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. It does not say, do not make him angry. A more delicate and tender term is used, grieve him not. For grief is a sweet combination of anger and love. It is anger, but the gall is taken from it. Love sweetens the anger and turns the edge of it not against the person, but against the offense. We all know how we use the term in contradistinction from one another. When I commit an offense, some friend who hath but little patience suddenly snaps asunder forbearance and is anger with me, angry with me. But the same offense observed by a loving father in whom he is grieved. There is anger in his bosom, but he is angry and he sins not. For he is angry against my sin, and yet there is love to neutralize and modify the anger towards me. Instead of wishing me ill as the punishment of my sin, he looks upon my sin as being the ill. He grieves to think that I'm already injured from the fact that I have sinned. And that's my favorite part. He grieves to think that I'm already injured from the fact that I have sinned. And that's because he knows the consequence of sin. He knows what it's going to do to us, and he knows what it's going to do to the ministry. So we grieve God through our sin. If we think back to Yellowstone again, we compare ourselves to those heat-seeking wells. Through the garbage, which is our sin, we block that heat-seeking source, which is the Holy Spirit. But why does it grieve him? When we become Christians, God now has this fantastic well of living water to heat by his presence. He has a blank canvas that he can use for his purpose. 
he wants us to be the best display of his presence. And when we allow sin back into our lives, we interfere with all of this. We mess up his plan. We start to pile that garbage at the bottom of the morning glory, and it starts with a coin here or there. It ends up with the whole couch, causing a complete blockage. And that garbage or sin is what we were delivered from when Jesus died on the cross. Because when we confess our sin and we accept Christ into our lives, he tells us to go and sin no more. That's in John 8, 11. This means that we go from existing in our sin to walking in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. I don't know what time it is. I'm probably going to keep you here until tomorrow. <laughs> um, I'm lost. I'm going to read here. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do these things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. No compromise. He lists it plainly. Right? And then in Ephesians. Seems so much easier to read it. Here we go. Ephesians 4, 25-32. Therefore put away lying. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. <clears throat> And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving another, even as Christ forgave you. So there are two overarching things, themes, sins against the body and sins against the heart and mind. So sins against the body, lusts of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, and drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, which means overindulgence, but be filled with the Spirit. And I know that there are a lot of opinions about alcohol. The whole Jesus drank wine, he turned water into wine. That's between you and the Lord. But there are two things that he says for certain here. Do not be drunk, and do not let your actions stumble someone else. Don't be overcome by drunkenness, and don't take somebody down with you. Romans 14, 21, it says, It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything which causes your brother to stumble or is offended or is made weak. So don't get drunk and don't go posting, advertising, there's mojitos on social media because it cannot be taken down. Once it is out there, it is out there for good. We're a representation of Christ. We are putting it out there that, hey, you know what? I go here to Calvary Chapel Cornerstone. I'm drinking my mojito because I have peace, because the Lord gave me peace. Again, is between you and the Lord. I'm not seeing anything beyond that other than the fact that the Bible is clear. Do not be drunk. Do not cause someone else to stumble by your actions. John, 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. 
So we live in a world, right, social media again, where we strive for perfection. As women, the pressure to become picture perfect, the best clothes, the best postpartum bodies, the cleanest house, the best behaved kids, contoured faces to hide the fact that we have nose and jawbones and cheek lines and, you know, all of that, right? We, I mean, I've seen some of those videos where, like, they literally have, like, 20 shades of color on their face to hide the fact that they have structure. Um, <laughs> And we're influenced by the world of women who are, like, we're heavily filtered. Like, there's so many filters to give me colored eyes, which the Lord knew not to give me colored eyes because I probably wouldn't be so insecure. But starting, like, and starving ourselves to fit into our clothes, right? Like, Kim Kardashian, she looked amazing in Marilyn Monroe's dress, but everybody's all mad at her now because she said she didn't eat for three weeks so she could fit into the thing. We cover in makeup, like, pores is a crime against humanity, like, and getting ready tonight, I know I'm probably really late, but getting ready tonight, I was like, I was hot. I had to wear makeup on. I didn't wear makeup during the day. And my cheeks were real flushed. And I put foundation on, and then I put blush on where my cheeks were already pink. And I was kind of like, <laughs> and I was shiny because I was like sweaty, right? And then I put like highlighter on to give myself like a shine. <laughs> I was like, this is really kind of silly because I already had like natural blush and natural shine, right? But, and like, I'm a kid of the 2000s, so I don't have brows. If I don't draw them on, then like, I'm not going to be like cool on TikTok. So, <laughs> but anyways, like, don't get me wrong. I love makeup. I love fashion. I went, I became a makeup artist. I was trying to become a hairstylist before I had my daughter. Like, I, I don't see any shame in it. I love Spanx. I love Fajas. I think they were created to help us. <laughs> But where we get us in trouble, right, is longing and that shame that what we are, who we are, is not good enough. And these are examples to me of the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. We're striving for perfection like we aren't already perfect. God is like, woman, don't you know I made you? Like, and you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't I do all things well? Weren't you formed carefully and meticulously formed with intent in your mother's womb? I made you in secret. It was just you and me. I skillfully created you. My eyes saw you being formed. I planned your life for you. How is this not enough? We just lust after what we don't have, worrying whether we're doing it right, anxious we're not keeping up, or missing out on something. Again, he's like, baby girl, look at the birds in the air, for they never sow, they never reap, they never grow, excuse me, gather in barns, but I feed them. Are you not more valuable than the birds, yet my provision is not enough for you? You want the next thing, a better house, a better car, better clothes, better husband? More, more, more. When am I enough? No wonder it creeps him. We're always telling him that how he made us and what he's given us is not enough. First, First Corinthians 6.18, see sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. This is why they want a daughter coming. <laughs> if we remember the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we are the temple of God. That's First Corinthians 6.19. We cannot take him on this journey of damage against our physical body. This goes to every woman in this room tonight and online. Nobody, nobody is exempt from sexual immorality. I don't care if you're married for 50 years. I don't care if you're single. Nobody is exempt from falling into sexual sin. In a research study conducted in 2017, researchers sought to address whether sexual experiences negatively impacted adolescents. They hypothesized that the sexual relationship, specifically with girls, would prove to be more detrimental to their mental health. They had a sample size of like 6,000 people, right, between the ages of 14 and 19, and they conducted surveys assessing casual sexual relationships and experiences, psychological distress, self-esteem, suicide, and alcohol and drug consumption. Their findings concluded, surprise, surprise, that adolescent females face more mental and emotional distress when engaged in casual sexual relationships. This is a study of the world. 
research, empirical study in school, I'm sorry. So they tend to be more more um, um, impacted psychological, their well-being, increase of drug and alcohol use, suicidal thoughts and tendencies, and the development of stronger attachment and expectations. But we didn't need the research study to prove what God has already told us, right? I love this quote by Maya Angelou. She said, A woman's heart should be so hidden in God that a man has to seek him just to find her. And the right man will cringe at the thought of defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we can mess up, and God's grace is sufficient to forgive. But God's grace and forgiveness is not to be mistaken for contraception. We don't just get to defile the temple of God at the plan of asking for his forgiveness. When we have multiple partners in sex outside of marriage, or sex with a partner inside of marriage, we open ourselves up to the issues that can come with sex. We know from the research study that this means emotional and psychological distress for girls. And weren't we all just little girls at one point? Didn't we just have to grow up? I still feel like a little girl just because I'm 38. Um, doesn't mean that I still have, you know, like I feel like I'm grown. I don't feel like I'm grown at all. Like who decided that I was equipped to have children? I'm not. I'm still a little girl myself, you know. So it's going to affect all of us no matter what age we are because we long to be loved and we long to be wanted and desired. And when you step outside of the way that God intends it to do or to be, we lose that, right? And beyond that, right, physically, we get STDs, STIs, STIs. They can cause cancer, infertility. You could die. <laughs> um, and in my case, it's the unplanned pregnancy, the result of becoming a single parent. The pain of watching my daughter cry every time she had to go with her dad while we learned how to co-parent. They're asking me, Mommy, why couldn't you just be with my dad? It was the pain of mediation, family court, someone telling me how I'm going to share my holidays, split birthdays, rotate every weekend, right? To this day, I struggle to forgive myself for what my choices caused my daughter, my family, and her, her new family, which I'm convinced I'm going to be best friends with her stepmom someday. <laughs> um, again, internet, she's probably going to see it. So I'm coming for you. <laughs> You're going to like me, I promise. But our actions can change the entire course of another person's life, and God knows this, and he knows what the outcome will be, so he warns us, do not do this thing that will destroy my temple. So then we go to the sins of the heart and the mind. In several places, we're warned about the condition of our hearts and our relationship, right? So the hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, anger, selfishness, ambitions, dissensions, which means disagreements or envy. We're the body of Christ. We have enough opposition in the world. We should be building each other up, not tearing each other down. This is the one place where we should be able to come and experience friendship and unconditional love. I have three kids, like I said. Nothing grieves me more than seeing them just mistreat each other. They are so mean to each other. And I'm like, you are literally all you have. And I mean, in COVID, you're literally all you have. We don't go in people. Um, and imagine God's heart when he sees us judging and criticizing and tearing each other down. We're his daughters. He, he's like, I love you all. You compliment each other. You're not supposed to be tearing each other apart. And so just as our bodies are the temple of Christ, this church, this congregation, us ladies are the temple of Christ. And we're each here to use our gifts to further the kingdom and to bear witness to the unbeliever about the love of God. And we cannot do that if we are not loving each other. We cannot be ruined by divisions and controversy. So by now, we have this clear picture of rebellion and sin that's the source of grief for God and the Holy Spirit, both in our thoughts and our actions. And remember, God exists within us, so there's nothing that can be hidden from him. When we sin, we take him along for the ride. Our anger, 
our unguarded tongue, so when, you know, we say that four-letter word when somebody cuts us off on the freeway, our impure thoughts, our broken relationships here in the church with our brothers and sisters in the body, our lack of communion with him, our abstaining from our gifts and our service with him, and our neglect of prayer or spending time with him, talking to him, maintaining our relationship. It's the fact that instead of running after him, we run after the lust of our flesh. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? It's Luke 6, 46. He's like, I freed you from all this, so why are you going back? And so it grieves him again to think of Spurgeon's words that I'm already injured from the fact that I have sinned. God knows the damage that the sin will cause. He knows how it's going to impact our lives. He's like, I warned you. I did everything I could to keep you from harm, but you insisted on your own way, and now you're injured. I can heal the wound, but there may be a scar. There's going to be a consequence, and you don't get to choose the consequences of your actions. I'll never forget my parents told me that. You don't get to choose the consequences of your actions. And, oh, gosh. Unfortunately, I had to learn the hard way that they're right. <clears throat> Poor my mom. And when we stray, we, we know to be, sorry, we can't claim ignorance, right? Because he gave us the guide. We have all the how-tos here. There's no ambiguity. We willfully act, and that's what grieves him. Because he knows our every act, to every action, there's a reaction, right? There's cause and effect. Natalie, you've sinned, so you will feel the effect of your sin. So not only will the ministry of my church suffer, because now you're not using your gift, but you will also suffer at an individual level, because you will have to deal directly with the residual fallout from your actions. Again, he grieves to think that I'm already injured from the fact that I have sinned. For me, the souvenirs from the world that I left with, self-loathing, I hate what I've done, depression, I grieve over what I've done, Anxiety, I worry over what I've done. Who's going to know what I did? Who's going to see this tonight and think, she's such a liar. She's such a hypocrite. I saw her do that one thing not long ago, and that's not a Christian, right? And we blow it all the time. We're not perfect. I'm not sitting here to act like I do not blow it to this moment. You know, I mean, it's just we're sinful. That's who we are. But the spirit or the, the fruit of the spirit is meant to come out. It's meant to convict, right? We hear that small voice, not that you know, Freudian thought that because somehow we were repressed in our childhood. No, it's the spirit that guides us and leads us and tells us, hey, this isn't you, this isn't me, this isn't what we want. So God fights with me, and he meets me where I am, and he knows my weakness, he knows my injuries, and that means that he's laid on the floor with me. I believe he's laid on the floor with me when I've been too heavy to move from my depression, too sorrowful to cry even. Sometimes you can't even cry, the tears don't come out, and you're like, I can't even cry, I can't even do that, right? And I hear him, Natalie, you are more than your past. I have a plan for you. I have a future for you. You have a hope. I plan to make you prosperous. I will comfort you because I still delight in you. Nothing can keep you from my love. And this is my favorite. This is in Psalm. So lie down in peace and sleep, my love, for you, I alone, will keep you safe. When I hate myself for what I've done and I fail to see the value in who I am and what I can do, You're a part of a chosen generation, my special person. I called you out of darkness to light. Even before the world was made, I chose you. I think about you all the time, precious thoughts. Not the bad thoughts, not remembering what you did. Remember, he put it in the ocean. (laughs) So many that I couldn't even count them, more than the grains of the sand. You're a new person. You're not that person anymore. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. When I'm afraid to be in public because of my anxiety. When I can't make eye contact or carry a conversation or make small talk, I'm horrible at it. I don't know how. And I come off as stuck up or I come off as rude and I come off as antisocial because I am because I don't know how to people. It's not because I don't want friendship. I, I, I crave it. I miss it. I need it. Right? We all do. But I don't know how to be 
the best friend that I can be. And it's sad because there's so many relationships that I miss out on because I'm like, eh, they don't care. They don't think about me. And we do that to ourselves, right? We rob ourselves of even those relationships that people are like, dude, like, I'm just trying to be your friend. <laughs> um, when I, my kids, we say dude and bro all the time. It's kind of unhealthy. Um, but so when I live guarded behind these walls that I've built, right, I want to stay hidden in my home, in my stretchy pants, instead of here with, <laughs> with my girdle. Um, instead of making friends, I hear him. Natalie, a friend always loves. They are meant to go through adversity with you. That's Proverbs seventeen seventeen. You have my spirit within you. I'm not a timid God. I will give you the power. Second Timothy one seven. I'm with you. I'll strengthen you. I'll uphold you. Isaiah forty one ten. When you're afraid, put your trust in me. Psalm fifty three six. So the irony is that while I dwell in my past, he doesn't. Psalm 103, 11 through 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful to the unrighteous, through their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, and I will remember them no more. Micah 7, 18 through 19, who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his people's heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. Did you know that the ocean covers 70% of the planet's surface and more than 80% of that is unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored? And that's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. There's a trench called the Mariana Trench, and it's in the North Pacific Ocean. It's the deepest point of all the Earth's oceans. It's been recorded, estimated, at 36,070 feet. It's like a plus or minus variation of like 140 feet. They say that if you were to take Mount Everest, which is the tallest mountain on the earth, and place it in this trench, it would still be covered by a mile of water overhead. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. That's quite an incredible promise because they haven't even been able to measure the depths of the sea. So then he said he's not going to hold our sins against us. So why am I spending my energy grieving over my past? Why does it consume me? But the enemy likes to do all that he can, again, to draw us away from the truth. The enemy remembers. He keeps an account so that he can use it against us. But God is a God of love. Everything he has done and will continue to do for us is his love for us. And since we know of his love and we know that he said, I will remember it no more, how do we know that this is true? Because God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? That's Numbers twenty three nineteen. In hope of eternal life with God, which, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, Titus 1, 2. And that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. That's Hebrews six eighteen. So we're told God's not going to remember our sin, and we're also told that he's incapable of lying. So we have the insurance and the assurance that when we confess our sin to him and ask for forgiveness, not only will he forgive, but now he's going to forget what it is that we asked him to forgive in the first place. And is that not the case, right? He said, I'm going to forget. So why are you bringing it up? Why are you dinging it up? Why are you searching for it? And we quite literally and metaphorically like to dig things up. Like if you think of the Titanic, they're still trying to go down there to this day and like take stuff up, right? And so we just cannot let sunken, sh- sunken ships lie. We dig them up, we go, and we try to retrieve. I don't know why. When we want to relive it, it's made me miserable. <laughs> so, like, why am I, like, lingering on it, right? So, 
But that's how sin grieves him, because he knows that this is who we are. He knows that though he will remember it no more, we will, and it hurts us and ultimately hurts the ministry. So how do we stop? We find the source of grief, the sin, whatever's keeping us from fulfilling our promise. We confess it. We ask for forgiveness. We trust that God, who cannot lie, will renew us daily, because that's what he said he will do. In Deuteronomy 32-3, we're closing, I promise. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today. You and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you from all the nations where the Lord God has scattered you. We walk, we run, we move forward, we pursue our gift, we use it to claim our rightful place in the body of Christ, and we accept God's grace as we take one day at a time because he restores. Restoration might not be immediate. Sometimes old cars, it takes a long, long time to restore it to its former glory, right? So be patient with your sisters who are struggling. Because if it's not your struggle, you might like, well, you know, you're good. Like, God forgive you. Like, let it go. It doesn't work that way sometimes. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does, and you're free, and you move on. And sometimes you dwell. You go to the Titanic. You unearth some of those artifacts. <clears throat> but he restores. Romans 8, 1. Um, there, is there, no, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin of death. We love like Christ. We choose joy. We take our place in the church. We go and we sin no more. And as a result, we quench and grieve him no more. Now may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 15 through 30. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time and this moment and for giving me the strength to even sit here tonight, Father God. And I pray that no word that came out tonight was not a word that you didn't intend to be said. So I pray that as we go home and we live our lives, Father God, and that you meet each one of us where we are, that we know that you see us and we know that you're in us. And so we pray that you would help us to live the life that you've called us to live. Help us to accept your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord. We pray that now we would move forward together as sisters and build each other up and build those bridges and relationships that we so desperately need. That we would dwell with each other with understanding and that we would just take our place in your body and your church. So thank you again, Lord, for all that you are and all that you do. And we pray that you would just continue to to move and to work in this church with these women. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.